Welcome to Wizardist. I'm Paul Canetti. This is episode 17. Today I'm talking to George Pechnig, the co-founder and CEO at 53. 53 uh, is the company behind the award-winning app Paper, among others. And uh, 53 is a super interesting company. So George is one of four founders, um, former Microsoft uh, folks that were working on a variety of things over on the Microsoft side, um, everything from Microsoft Office and some of their early cloud products uh, into Xbox. And George was a co-founder of Pioneer Studios, which was an innovation lab within Microsoft. They did a lot of really interesting work. And one of the things that I learned about the founding team um, during this conversation was that two are designers and two are engineers. And the founding team of 53 being half and half like that, um, to me, really comes through in the work that they do. And when you're using paper or their newest product, Paste, or anything that they've ever done, it really beautiful and well thought out and the intention is clear from a design standpoint. Um, but then the execution is also just flawless in the animations and the speed and the responsiveness. Um, just a lot of really heavy lifting happening on the back end that seems totally effortless when you're actually using the products. Paper, uh, soon after it came out um, in 2012, it was named Apple's iPad app of the year. And I met George in those early iPad days where, um, you know, 53 and Maz were both sort of iPad centric companies uh, here in New York. And 53 was taking a really forward looking approach um, at Maz. Like a lot of people at the time, we viewed iPad as a consumption device. This is a place where you're going to read articles and books and watch movies. And George and his team right from the beginning understood that this was something that you could use to create. 53 created a stylus for iPad um, called Pencil. This is before Apple, coincidentally, called their stylus Pencil. Um, this was at a time when Apple actually, and Steve Jobs was saying that they would never have a stylus and that uh, using a stylus was was a grave mistake. Um, and 53 understood early on that that wasn't the case. And uh, they have done so many amazing and ambitious things. They have unbelievable investors, everyone from Chris Dixon to Jack Dorsey. Uh, and they just released a new presentation tool called Paste. And Paste is a new way to create presentation decks. And I talked to George, this was recorded maybe two weeks ago. Um, and these new products came out just this week, the first week of December. And I can't believe that he sat down and took the time to, uh, to talk with me. I know that the end of a release cycle, it's not easy to steal yourself away. And so I truly appreciate that he came by to talk. And, uh, we talk about not only, uh, George's journey at 53, but also about design itself and what it means to automate certain parts of design to take the onus of the design away from the creator um, to sort of allow them to get their ideas out and to communicate more effectively and more quickly. One of the most amazing things about getting to know George over the years 
is that um, he's just so passionate about everything that he does and that 53 does. And it really comes through when talking to him and really comes through in the work itself. You can just see sort of the love and care and attention put into uh, to these incredible products. So definitely check out Paper, check out Paste uh, on your iPhone or iPad. Hot off the press this week. There are free versions of both. And uh, without further ado, I give you George Pechnig, co-founder and CEO at 53. Paul, we've known each other for so long. I think it's good that we get to have a chat. Every time we meet up, it's like well overdue. So exactly. there's plenty of things to talk about. Exactly. Um, yeah, well, you guys have been busy, to say mm-hmm. the least. So just before we started recording, you were telling me, but the last time I think we saw each other in person, um, you came in to speak in my class and you gave a presentation which was created in paper and you were talking about sort of the future of presentations um and that was only a few months ago and it seems between now and then you've basically reinvented the presentation uh or i don't know if that's how you would phrase it but that's what it looks like to my eyes uh so what have you guys been working on so we've been doing two things the first is we are about to to launch a whole new presentation product called paste and that's a presentation tool where we really rethought how presentations work in the age of messaging i.e. Slack and mobile. And then we're also relaunching paper. So that's a from the ground up rewrite of paper. Really? From the ground up? Yeah. That's insane. It's been it's been really, really busy. Yeah. So I'm I'm curious and jealous in a way. I feel like it's a desire of anyone who manages a product, especially one that's been around for years. It's like a daydream to just say, you know what, what if we just started it all again from zero? How how did you come to make that decision and how has the process been? Is, did you rebuild sort of what you already had, but in a more, you know, now that you know everything you know, you were able to go back and do it better? Or is it really like reimagining it? Yeah, so with, with paper, I mean, the story really involves around uh, our engineer, Max Lieberman, really, really wanting to re-engineer the product, but he was also right in, in saying that. So when we first developed paper, that was in, two, we started the development process in 2011, right? And it launched in 2012. So this is five years ago. There was no iPad Pro. There was no large iPad. Retina iPads didn't quite exist. There was no Metal. There was no UI kit. There was none of that. So there's no like, Swift. There's no Swift, right? So we essentially implement an, a custom UI interface on OpenGL uh, for the first version of Paper. And then briefly before launch, Apple said, "Is like, hey, we're launching this Retina iPad. Uh, can you guys like quadruple the resolution? I'm not sure what it exactly <laughs> yeah, was. Something yeah. like, and we're like, sure, we'll give it a try, right? And so that certainly like put, put Paper, uh, it gave Paper a very distinctive look when it first launched. But since then, uh, as you know, like, you know, iPad has evolved to a much more robust productivity environment, especially with iOS 11, where you have side-by-side applications, you have different screen orientations. Swift was introduced, uh, new programming toolkits, uh, different screen orientations. I think the latest now, when you think about it, like, you know, iPhones come in four to five different sizes. 
iPads come in three different sizes and two different res- three different resolutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when you start multiplying that out, uh, that's a lot of different screen sizes that people you have to end up supporting. And 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 so we just really had to from the ground up like move paper onto a new code base and to a new UI framework. And to right sort of retrofit that original app, which was built for a single iPad with a single you know eventually it catches up with you yeah so there's there is um and and so what you'll see in the new version of paper is is a is a a fresh new visual identity Uh, we also um, this ties into our presentation to product paste we're able to really look at what's what's the essence of paper and really get back to the essence of paper which for us is this really beautiful quiet idea capture space, right? Where no one is going to mess with you. No one is going to alert you. No one is going to tell you what to click at or what to do. It's just you and your ideas. And we really wanted to build a more immersive environment. So you'll see us bring back some of the the, the journal interface uh, that we we launched in versions ones and two. Uh, with three, we removed that in, in, in preparation to set up our, for our collaboration mode. But uh, with four, we're bringing that back, uh, but it, we're also marrying it with a grid interface where you can very quickly organize your ideas. Uh, so you can go like from from beautiful journal view where you're framing up sort of your 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 sequence and you're staging your thinking in terms of the grid where you can quickly then organize that. And then it works alongside with paste. And paste is then when you can then move from your individual ideas to to sharing them with your team in the form of a presentation or uh, more of a story. So it's almost like your ideas. Some of them hopefully graduate out of paper that's, and into paste. That's right. Yeah. So ideas, you know, people have a big need, as I said, especially today, to to spend time with their thinking, um, and but at the same time, like the types of problems that we're solving today usually require many more people, right? It's it's you're never really working by yourself uh, to sharpen your thinking, to sharpen your point of view, to get better, to get feedback, right? You, you got to work with others and. The way how humans make sense of something, any situation, is actually through stories. They're like, you know, this is where we think we've been. This is where we think we're going. And uh, the the best tool we've known so far for this in the in the team context and or also in the context of a corporation is the presentation. And and that's kind of like your your storyboard before you make the film, right? It's not the script. It's more the storyboard. And and uh, we felt it's time to really rethink how how presentations work. Has anyone ever built an actual storyboard for a movie in paper? I feel like it would be great for that. Yeah, many, many folks. So imagine. actually, like uh, director Ben Wheatley, so he actually has created beautiful storyboards in that. And then Rob McCollum, he's like one of the top uh, top storyboard artists in the world. So he actually, you know, he, most recently, I think his most recent film is like It for, for Stephen King. Wow. Uh, and... Pacific Rim was another film of his. Cool, like, yeah, they, these would, are massive. Yeah, so he massive would illustrate movies. some some scenes in, in paper. So cool. Um, it's funny about the presentation because I've been thinking more generally about sort of you know the the productivity trifecta of documents, spreadsheets, uh, presentations, and how uh, we've come to make some you know. Uh, variety of those some combination of those three work in 100 percent of cases so it's like i'm using spreadsheets in the most bizarre ways because i don't have anything better you know um i'm actually using documents less and less and i'm using presentation software for ways that it was never intended and it seems like at some point there almost should emerge 
other categories. Um, or I guess in, in your case, it's really about not necessarily a new category, but modernizing one of those three, at least to start um, in that presentations aren't always actually used to present. Uh, you know, here's a boardroom and now I'm going to put the slides up on the deck. In practice, that's not how probably the majority of keynote or PowerPoint files are actually used anymore. Yeah, it's uh, true. 60 per, in our research, actually, you know, when we surveyed our the paper user base, which is fairly large, 60% of presentations are internal facing. They aren't, they, they, you know, if you have the model of like a TED talk or like the lone wolf standing in front of a boardroom in mind for a presentation tool, that is just not how people are using presentations anymore. That's how the product was designed. Like when you go back to the history of PowerPoint and also like, you know, just listen to the word PowerPoint. Someone is <laughs> trying to pitch you with a bullet point and then keynote upped it because now you're doing your keynote. Now it's more like, hey, what people are trying to do with these products is like they want to like stage a sequence of ideas and walk people through it. You know, and, and there is, we can talk about them as a genre of product, but there's something very, very true in the slide presentation format. And you can uh, go all the way back to like, do you know actually the story when the slide presentation was invented? I don't. This is super fascinating, right? So it actually was invented in the 1960s. Um, I'm going to butcher the name, but I think it's called something like the, the original paper was called Sequential Thematic Organized. I don't know what the P stands <laughs> that for. That sounds pretty good. But it, but it was developed by the, the technical writing community in the United States. And they were forced, you know, they suddenly... Uh, were faced with this challenge of having to document ever more complex systems. Engines were getting more complex, operating systems, machines, motors, like the, the things microprocessors, the things humans were building were getting so complex that creating documentation for it was getting out of hand. And the process at that time of creating a document uh, was the one we're probably still taught in school. You develop an outline, you farm out the outline, people start writing and filling in the outline, and then you collate the document. And what happened was that people ended up with these massively long documents that didn't make any sense. Like someone would, you know, describe the spark plug, say, for 15 pages, right? One, no one, let's say, no one cared about the spark plug <laughs> or what the topic actually was, you know, how do I, you know, how do you tune ignition performance, right? So, what happens is oftentimes when you develop a document from an outline perspective first, uh, you don't really see the right themes emerge or themes that an end user would want to know about. So they took some skills from the, or some, some approaches from the, where the magazine world, right? Where they developed the canonical slide format where you just outlined your, your statement, you create, a, you show a main asset on it, and you just create a single sheet that describes what the general writing thrust will be about. And then you storyboard the entire manual or whatever massive document you're going to do. You collate, you organize, you bubble up themes, very similar to what you know today in design thinking you'd be taught, like in terms of you know, how to cluster ideas. And from that then, uh, once that's all done and the document was visually laid out, uh, people would start writing. So the 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 storyboard in this case right moving from the slide as a unit of thought to the storyboard to a cohesive whole right is that's a mechanism that just works really well and it happens so that you know the presentation tools that we use today they do some of that 
Uh, in fact, we think they don't do it nearly enough of that. So with Paste, for example, we centered the entire product experience on the storyboard, right? Because we have to get people out of the mindset of just creating slides. No, no, what they're doing is they're creating a, a more cohesive whole. Uh, and the amazing thing is with a storyboard, it actually also supports multiple people working together. I'm not sure if you've ever tried to work on a document with multiple people, like the editing step might work, but the initial conception step doesn't work because we don't know how to create outlines like in parallel. Like it, it just doesn't yes. work. Like many de demos when you see like, you know, uh, product demos for any modern document tool where you see people typing at the same time. Like there is a sleight of hand that's happening. Yes. They're usually filling out some outline that was established beforehand. Right. Um, but it's with the in the presentation format, in the storyboard format, where you can actually have a structure emerge when you don't quite know what the solution is or how to tackle the problem, or you know you're about to describe or break down a really large problem, like a new microprocessor design. Like the presentation format is actually really good for that because it's in parallel and it's visual, right? Yeah, and it chunks it up in a way that a 15-page document, you know, you start zoning out on page four it's, and, and it's funny. I noticed them like back when Mad Men was on the air. Do you watch Mad Men? I saw that. Yeah. Uh, and, and they would go in for these big pitches to, uh, and I noticed that, that, and, and this was, I guess, taking place in the sixties in, in the fictional show, but it was based on, on reality, uh, ostensibly, but they never had any presentation sort of slide by slide it was just a conversation and then they would sort of unveil like one visual or you know toward at the end of the conversation and say and that's why we came up with you know whatever toothpaste the best brand you know and it was just sort of the deliverable but the story was being delivered uh the narrative was being delivered just verbally and um and i still think that the best presentations that i see really just sort of augment the the verbal story the story that is is being told it's not that someone's reading every word off every slide it's the ted talk for instance like the, mm -hmm. the best ted talks that that do use slides it's just sort of a, a frame of reference almost um that is is sort of guiding the narrative and even not collaboratively if you're just building a presentation the best way to start is with that sort of outline or storyboard is a better term for it i i know so many times I go to edit someone's deck and I can sort of tell that they built it sequentially. Mm -hmm. Like right. yeah. they started with the title slide, they added the next slide, they added the next slide, they added the next slide. And then retroactively, they're trying to go back and create some sort of, you know, through line or, or some sort of, you know, thematic arc or something. Um, and then they're always like, I don't know what to do with this slide. It doesn't fit anywhere. And the right answer is always like, get rid of it. Yeah. <laughs> but no one ever wants to do that. Yeah, that's like what I like about sort of the madman analogy there is like that that narrative is a, usually a concise summary of insights they did, data they gathered, and later episodes they even used computers right, to, right. to derive insights. You know, and, and back then, like it's the end deliverable usually was just a, a print ad, right? So even right. the deliverable was pretty straightforward. Like when you think about today, like the types of projects we do, you know, we have market research, brand insights, uh, technological opportunities, platform opportunities to assess. Uh, you have, you know, different finance considerations to bring in. And typically like the deliverables that we're presenting, it's not a single piece of paper, right? right? It's also right. much more complex. Um, you know, when you think about like, you know, we, 
or experiences with software tools. They'll run on mobile devices and on TVs, on different platforms, right? So our need to actually make sense and, and at the same time keep a team on the same page or even figure out what that page is, right, is dramatically increased today. And, uh, and that's sort of where, where, where we see like, you know, and that's where we also just felt like, you know, the idea of paste then became so compelling because we really wanted to make it also very easy for people to just paste in their ideas, drop their whatever specific asset or tool or insight people have, just keep dropping it into the space and then you can make sense there. And you can make sense as a team as a whole. So that's, and it also like gets people out of the habit of having to lay out slides. That's again, it's like actually a waste of time. Like the computer can lay out a slide for you. So just paste your ideas in and, and a lot of our auto layouts and essentially start laying out the, if it's a spreadsheet or it's a, if it's a paper sketch or if it's a video file or if it's a social media tweet, whatever it is you're sharing, right? You know, it starts getting laid out and you just have to collide it to, to, and you can make sense of it and paste. So that's interesting because you know, for a product that originally started as essentially a tool for designers, I don't mean professional designers, I mean anyone that mm. wishes to put an idea to paper, mm -hmm. um, the idea of automatically designing something sort of would seem counterintuitive or almost blasphemous or something. To my ears, it sounds like beautiful music uh, because I think that that so many people fear design or layout um, as a barrier to communicating their ideas, you know? Um, and even though other presentation tools, whatever, have like templates and things, somehow most people I know end up butchering those templates. Even though it should be easy to make a good looking deck, they'll still make a bad looking deck. Um, and so when you're thinking about the user of paste, like it must be interesting to think about someone who specifically does not necessarily want to do the design work whereas with paper my impression historically was that it's some, sort of the opposite it's someone that wants to start to do it but mm -hmm. there's a lot of auto layout stuff in in paper too yeah you know so that's like that was like one of these really interesting design considerations for paper like we we the, the the paper and a lot of the inks in it like actually help you out quite a bit like the watercolor tool for example will blend colors for you or the color tool or like you know or or, or the sketch tool right will, will vary line weights for you as you uh, you know as you increase velocity and and it gives you more flourishes and more um, you know a certain aesthetic appeal to it now that said those tools like they don't dumb things down like what people realize is that we also designed a lot of depth into them uh, but what we did get rid of is a bazillion settings, like take the sketch tool, right? So it sort of allows you to work with opacity and shade very easily, right? In, in any given drawing program at that time, you would have had to adjust opacity, maybe blend modes, dial in color values, and then how does that interact with all of your other tools? Like you'd have to set up multiple layers, you have to merge them. I mean, it was really, really complicated and nowhere near what you could actually do uh, and, and none of the existing tools at that time took advantage of touch as a way of input. So with paper and expressive inks, then what we ended up doing there is developing a lot of aesthetic algorithms that allowed you, like, that gave you somewhat of a boost. But it's 
it's more like an electric bike. It's not like training wheels, if you understand the analogy, right? <laughs> yes, yes. You know, it's, 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 if you want to take off, like, you know, the, the, the boost, you can do that too. Um, but it's, but it's a full fledged bike and same with paper. It's a full fledged drawing program in that sense. Now with paste, oh, actually you should talk a little bit more about and what we actually did on, about paper. And when you look at how we called these tools, we didn't call our, our sketching tool, pencil tool. It is truly for the activity of sketching. Right? And our drawing tool isn't called calligraphy brush. It's called drawing tool because it is optimized for the activity of drawing. And the coloring tool is not called watercolor. It is optimized for the activity of coloring and working with color. Now let's translate that into the slide context or the presentation context. Today, if you want to, you know, when you open up any presentation tool, you'll see a bazillion different buttons and layout choices and themes that you have to choose from. I mean, it, it these are fairly complex. I mean, you're looking at, you know, 20 plus, 30 plus years of craft in these products. Um, whereas when you think about what are the important things someone should be able to do in a presentation is one, are you introducing an idea? Okay, so there should be an introduce command, right? It, it's not there. In paste, you can actually choose intro, right, as an option. And now, boom, we lay out the slide because you're about to introduce an idea. The next thing is, are you trying to show something? Okay, what's important when you show something? Well, the assets should be large, you know, less text, but you really want to show something. Or are you here to explain something, right? There needs to be an explain command, right? Okay, what's important in explaining? Well, the text should be larger, assets should be smaller, right? Because you're, you're, you're drawing out explanations, right? So we're moving up higher in the semantic stack, right? Which is good. Like people shouldn't have to nudge left, move right, copy up like if you want to like say i want like my you know i'm text on the left you should be able to just quickly swipe text to the left and have it be on the left side rather than having to like manage and move text objects around right right so and go through three menus to get there or that's, whatever that's right so for us like you know we, we really looked at you know as you're trying to you know compare and make sense of work in a presentation and the work artifacts and those ideas like what are really the semantic layouts that you need and so in, in paste we have like a semantic layout engine right so what we're hearing from designers and uh, by the way let's talk about the designers like they'll really appreciate actually and enjoy that they can now in one way just design the sort of the the brand stationary for a company and everyone uses it like right. so for them it's actually what we've been hearing from designers in particular about paste is like they love the fact that like everything does just feels a little bit much more on brand for companies and they feel that there is an ability to actually uh not have ugly presentations floating around so that's yeah. actually a big no big i mean win. because it's amazing how badly people can mess it up you yeah. know um yeah, Even there's if too you much give rope. Them yeah, a good template. Much, yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's too much rope. There's I love that. There's too much that. rope. Right. Uh, and it's really, it's a concept I talk about, like working from first principles, where instead of saying, okay, uh, how do we get someone to align the text to the left? It's really understanding, like, why why would someone do that or or uh, or whatever? Why would someone make the asset smaller and the text bigger? Well, it's because they want to explain something. So yeah. really what we're after is an explain function, yeah. not a text size, size left ex right up exactly down, yeah. and at the same time what you then can establish is then workflows with much more sophisticated tools right so like if a designer really has to make a visual point a highly polished visual point 
you know, they can go load in an asset, say, from, um, you know, Adobe After Effects, right? It could be a full-on motion reel presentation. They just drop in that asset. Or, you know, if it's a vector file, they can work with Figma, right? So they drop in a Figma link and it stays live, right? So that's then a live connection in the presentation, right? So it allows people to move into their specialized tools or a data scientist, you know, they don't have to, you know, they can provide a live data table right, from not Google linking Sheet. out somewhere exactly from Google Sheets or from Tableau or they can use a specialized tool rather than having to reformat their data to fit into some like table format in right. Keynote or you know I yeah, mean it's, some like which, there, disgusting pie chart and then right. and if the data changes, changes you have to remember to go and update it and that's that's exactly right so it's really about identifying what are some of these these essential basic tools that a team needs to quickly share the work uh, share their ideas and their thinking without, you know, burdening people with formatting, burdening people with uh, having to move their content out of the, the, their, their specialized tools. And that's kind of what's exciting when you actually look around, you know, you start speaking about sort of the trifecta of productivity apps. Well, it turns out we've actually picked up some really, really specialized and really powerful tools of late. Um, to, to help you do design work, to help you, you know, like write better, to, to engage in social media, to, to analyze data, to report from dashboards, right? And those currently actually don't play at all with your, you know, your typical keynote and PowerPoint, right? And so Paste is also, will be a really great integration point for a lot of these applications. Yeah, it's almost like these, the existing software, like, it's like they don't know about the internet. It's they, like they, they don't they, they were invented they, before they right, internet. Exactly. like they've just right. been you know in a cave somewhere uh it's, it's bizarre honestly when when you think about it um and surprisingly even some of the inner the internet based tools like google uh you know uh what are they calling now g suite yeah or whatever um but when you're actually in those they might as well be in a desktop software for the most part you know um i remember when i first used paper i mean not surprisingly what struck me was how much it resembled using real paper um and and it's fascinating to hear you talk about those decisions that you had to make on the uh, on the product side to um so for instance instead of a separate setting for opacity and this and that um the end result was to sort of intuit what does the user want here and essentially at least in a lot of those cases to emulate what happens in a natural environment if i'm putting ink real ink on a real piece of paper you know how fast i go and how hard i press will naturally change the the way it looks but throughout human history i don't think people have necessarily been picking that apart you just sort of know if you press hard it's going to be darker and if you press lightly it's going to be lighter um, it's very intuitive to to write or draw that way. And then you were able to sort of break that down into its constituent parts and put it back together in a virtual environment. Um, something that I think about a lot lately is just as a designer, not only about auto layout, but sort of how uh, how computer systems could potentially help me communicate my ideas better than my hands could. Um, and thinking about things like uh, natural language processing and machine learning slash AI and and um, you know in other words sometimes I spend 20 minutes just sort of pushing the pixels around until I get it right where I want it um, but really most of what I'm designing ultimately is, has some set of rules 
And of course, when I'm actually designing something that gets handed off to a team of developers, I have to essentially translate myself into rules that they can use. Um, but then I've started sort of introspecting that even my own designs for myself are playing by some set of rules, even if they're custom to me, like the Paul design rules that essentially create my aesthetic. Uh, if you get to know me enough, you could probably predict how I would do something. Um, and so I don't know, do you ever think about that sort of stuff outside of the context of what you're working on now, but like in the future is the most efficient way for a designer to get an idea out of his or her head just to sort of talk to the computer or to, to sort of, instead of wasting that time on, on trying to make it match whatever's already in your mind, is there some more efficient way to get those ideas just out into the world? Yeah, there is this on the one, I mean, I look, you know, I probably would share another story from, from David Kelly, like uh, my advisor when I was studying product design. And, and he always said, as a designer, you'll be working on so many different projects. And by the way, what I think he's about to, what, what he was about to say uh, applies to any, any type of discipline, right? There is, you know, how do you really know you're becoming a better designer? How do you know, you're, you know, you're becoming a better professional? Uh, what he said is that, well, you just need to trust the process and have a process and be able to evaluate a process. So, and and that's kind of where, where he would then describe as sort of the design thinking ethos and the process around that. And I, there there's truth to that. I do believe there's a lot of work that, that, that even when you practice dance, when you uh, code, when you have a technique, uh, when you, you know, play music in your scales, like there is a certain process of repetition and moving through it that allows you then to, to perform, right? Um, I, again, I think that it applies to engineering, it applies to the arts, it applies to design, it applies to, to you know, if it's just, there, there is a ritual and work and, and that has then certain expressions. At the same time, there's also great creativity, um, you know, when you disregard those processes, like there's, I still don't understand why sometimes like Italian car design, why they look the way they do. It just makes absolutely no sense. Some of these designs, right. But they're really cool. Right. You know, it's, I, I don't know if there is a rule. And then a lot of times, like when you walk around in, 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 in like, you know, in, in, in Japan, when you look at like how efficient and rule-based a lot of their trains are, I mean, those are like so obviously like, you know, incredible achievements of engineering, but why do they look like dragons, right? I mean, it just also <laughs> makes no sense, right? So I think there is a good, you know, there's a good place for, for, you know, great writing and great structured thinking, but there's also a place for poetry, right? And those two things have to go together. And I... You know, I, I think I'm, I'm actually from that perspective, really glad that I actually got to spend some time with dance because it's also one of those things like, you know, dance is something that human, humankind has probably done for like ever. It's like a human universal. It makes no sense why it even exists. And, you know, people can't say like, oh, no, like mating rituals, blah, blah, blah. No, like dance is like so widely spread as a cultural expression that it's like a human universal it is a human universal. It is so highly complex as an activity when you start like looking at a ballet and it's so highly perishable. Like dance always dies with the human body. It is like an art form that is, it, it doesn't outlast any 
you know, human body, yet people do it, right? And so I think it is, it's a really fascinating thing that, that on the, you know, that, that, that we as a species, we can have very, very structured and very evolved structures, but at the same time, there's also a deep need for poetry and, and aesthetics, right? And which, and they both belong, you know, sometimes, and then you just have to choose where are you? Like, if you only choose the structure stuff, you end up with some really, really weird stuff dreary sad expressions of like automaton and i think i mean if everything is algorithmically generated it's just very very strange stuff comes from that um but if you take the rules to their extreme they can end up having their own sort of creativity is the wrong word but It's, it's like a dystopia or something. Yeah, and, and conversely, if it's if it's just, you know, aesthetics and just poetry, I mean, it's it's very beautiful. That, by the way, is probably going to last much longer than any type of overstructured point. But it's but it's uh, but but it's hard to, um, you know, to, to reproduce that. And I yeah. think today a lot of people are just really, really stressed out about the idea, like, you know, of how do you scale yourself? How do you become more efficient? I think it's just like a more of an expression of, of, you know, living in the 21st century. But I think that right. that people should like tone down a little bit, just make something that's really beautiful, start there mm-hmm. and then, and then figure out a way to process. Sounds nice. Uh, yeah. But, and, and the thing is that throughout history, maybe dance actually be an exception here, but when you think about music, when you think about, um, visual art, even writing, the creativity has to come out through a set of tools, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, would Mozart have have composed different music if different instruments had been sort of in vogue at the time instead of the ones that he was using? You know, all those those sorts of things. And, and I think about that a lot. Like, where does that sort of poetic aesthetic live in the 21st century? Um, and that my hope, at least, is that these very modern tools are just that, that they're tools and they... It, it's just a it presents a different way to sort of express those same human ideas and that there's nothing special about a physical piece of paper or an acoustic instrument versus let's say a digital instrument um and that ultimately they're all tools that can be used to express human emotion or human you know uh passion uh what have you been doing with dance you sort of alluded to Oh no! This was my college years. It's a oh, long time ago. Do but, tell, do tell. Yeah, no, no. It was just like I just. It's it's interesting. Like I, you know, last time I probably danced just what twelve, thirteen years ago, and it was something I did more on the side as a side. But it, it's like some of the lessons that you learned in one discipline. It just takes you sometimes many, many more years to realize that you actually did learn something really profound and really important for your life. You know, at first I, you know, I always would say like, oh, dance was good because it allowed me to be comfortable when I do public speaking. And there's a certain ritual of myself, like getting ready to talk and to perform uh, in, in that sense. But there's actually a more, like, I guess the more profound learning for me was that you know, I participated in an activity or that, that is, you know, age old, like that is like generations before me have been doing this and it is so frivolous and it's so wonderful at the same time that this exists, you know, and it's like, if you and I are still not here, like dance will still go on, 
in it and it only lasts like you know your personal experience of dance only ex exists you know with your body in that sense right and that's actually that's kind of crazy right we don't we don't have like you don't need books you don't need um you know photographs or videos to capture that thing that humans have been doing for for like ever right, right. and i think that's 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 truly exciting to to just I just always have to keep that in mind, you know, despite a lot of like the, the products that we're designing and building today that, you know what, there is, there's stuff, um, that, that lasts yeah. and outlasts us. Yeah. I'm trying to think if there's anything else like that, I guess singing, right? Yeah. Something where the human body is all that's required, you know, yeah. you don't need, that's right. That's right. Th there's, there's no extension beyond that. Um, yeah. wow. Yeah. So, so well, talking about your college years i studied computer engineering economics and then, uh, and then electrical design. engineering and some design yeah so that's interesting because i think about people as taking one of those two paths typically like either more on the engineering side more on the design side how did you one of the most striking things i remember the first time you invited me to come into your office and almost everyone you introduced me to was a designer hmm. in your office. And I was really stricken because I'd been in a lot of sort of startup offices and normally there was like one or two designers and then sort of a team of engineers. And obviously you have amazing engineering talents as well. But I was, it really always stuck with me. I was like, wow, there's such an emphasis here on, on design. Um, and so do you think that comes out of your own sort of, um, you know, it, it is, you seem like sort of right on the line between the two sides. And do you think that 53 sort of inherited that same ethos from you directly? Or is it more in service of the particular products that you wanted to build? Or is it both? Hmm. I mean, it has a lot, like when we founded 53, I mean, we found 53 with two designers and two engineers, right? So I was one engineer and Julian was one of the engineers and um, Andrew and John were the two designers, right? So from the very beginning, we thought like it is important to have uh, design and engineering on board. It, I would say like for me to like manage and bring multidisciplinary teams together has been something that I've been doing throughout my career. And I think it has more to do with the fact that I just, always grew up in between engineering and design, um, which was, you know, my mom, um, was in hospitality. And so that's like events, that's design. Uh, my, my grandfather was like an architect, but he would always approach it very much any architecture project project, much more from a requirements, functional engineering perspective. My dad was very quantitative based, like as, as, you know, um, in sales and as working as an analyst. So it was, um, you know, there's always was like a mishmash of that. And also like my entry to computers was always through computer graphics. So, and later it would work on image compression and, and just a lot of visual, more visually oriented problems where the right solution is usually is an aesthetic solution, right? Or when I was working on um, computational digital photography, a lot of imaging processing algorithms. So there always was like an aesthetic component uh, that, that, that was, there. So when it came then to, to working at 53, that was another thing. It's like where we 
meaning like Andrew, John, Julian, myself, like we really saw at that time, like the big opportunity to actually bring design and engineering much closer together. And we wanted to create a company uh, where, where that was like written into the founding DNA. Like most technology companies, um, or at least many of the big ones were, were created by, by engineering founders, like um, take Microsoft, right? And lo and behold, like, you know, 25 years later, there's an engineering to design ratio of like one to 40, right? And, and or even Facebook, right? It took, it took many years for them to, to really, you know, break that ratio of one to 40. And, you know, they ended up hiring many of my students um, then to, to build out the, the, their design team. Uh, they're fantastic students and, or fantastic designers, students. Right. I, I was a student for my students. I learned from them. <laughs> and, and that's sort of like where, where I, I, I think like a, a te- again, this is like, a, we take a really strong point of view on this is like, you know, technology is there to serve the human need to create. Uh, we don't think technology is there just to grow or to bring active users or to scale. Like, no, the first thing you need to ask yourself is like, what is this technology going to do for people? And uh, we see there is just a huge opportunity to taking a lot of the knowledge that exists in the design field and making that much more accessible to people. When I looked at my, my, my studies, like from engineering or economics, um, teaching like the basics of econ, finance, engineering to someone like it's actually fairly well understood and established. But when it comes to design, there are one, there aren't that many curricula there. And so what we actually are doing at 53, oftentimes we're taking some of the best and most well-proven techniques from design and making them more accessible. Like, you know, any design course that they'll show up, you know, you go there and they'll teach you basic visualization skills, sketching skills. We're like, okay, cool. We're going to put those right into paper, right? And they'll teach you skills of how to create a great storyboard. We're like, cool, here you go. Like, here's a, here's a presentation tool that does that. Or when we were working on, on, on pencil, one of the big sayings, like Professor Fasti, one of my, my professors was like, look, you need to think with your whole body. It's not just like your mind. Sometimes like just through doing, you figure stuff out, right? Because there's instincts in the hand, right? And so then we created pencil, uh, because there is truly instincts in the hand, right? If you can more easily create on, on, on devices. So that's kind of, it's a long-winded way of saying it's like a field design and engineering like really belong together. It was heavily shaped by what I had seen at, at, at Microsoft at the time. Uh, then also like the specific mission of 53. And, and the answer really is that, you know, design and engineering, they just belong together. Like I, I can't think of them separately. Great designers will be great engineers, and great engineers will become great designers in their own way, right? So it's it's almost like two ends of the horseshoe. You can feel it in the products that you create. I mean, the, and and you may not realize how rare I think that mm. is. You know, um, of that sort of perfect balance and melding, and and sort of the sum being greater than the the whole. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's ironic that um, you know you're taking on Microsoft PowerPoint. What I knew of your time at Microsoft was more on like the research side. Tell me sort of, what did you learn there? Like, did you always know that that, that they were doing it wrong? Or at the time, did it seem right? Does that make any sense? 
Well, wow. I mean, it's you know a question of like I wouldn't frame it as right and wrong, right? I mean, it's like my first like out of college, my first job at Microsoft was to work on the first online version of Office, right? I was like, wow, you know. Outlook hosted like hosted Exchange Outlook in the cl- today we'd call Outlook in the cloud right it was like you know this was the time when people were still like using modems to dial into like their pop email server right to download that email their emails and then they would only store their emails on their like local machines and you know this this radical renegade group within Microsoft like built like email as a service. Uh, that you could access and it wasn't just that you could also edit documents and do spreadsheets and you know it was 2000 the internet was here and well but the world didn't, wasn't ready right i mean companies and individual users like truly still were on on dial up right and essentially just you know rejected the product and funny story we ended up having to take that software piece pressing it on a cd to compete against aol then right so you would get your internet subscription plus you know, our, our great NetDoc suite of products. But, you know, then it did take, what, 10, 12 years for Office 365, or maybe even longer, 14 years later, like Office 365 takes hold, right? So there's a long, 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 long process there. And the, you know, in 2006, when, or 2003, four and, uh, 2003, four, five or so, around that time, like, you know, there was then a big push at Microsoft to get better at document workflows. And that's kind of what led to the creation of SharePoint. And that was actually really exciting reframing and rethinking of the Office productivity suite as a whole. It was less as a, let's create a document that ends up being printed, right? And so like one of the really cool stories from that time is that for example, Visio, which was the software tool to plot, you know, create big plots and big posters was actually retooled as a business intelligence solution that would dynamically generate charts on SharePoint. And that was a really innovative shift of what these uh, tools were doing. But the the focus there was to make document workflows better, drug approval processes, uh, you know, expense reports, like hiring process, like, and, and the piece that that I thought was great was that, you know, there was a strong customer focus on how to make people more efficient. Many years later, I, I just felt that, you know what, we can't make people more efficient, or maybe we should stop making people more efficient. Like, how about making people more creative, <laughs> right? I mean, at some point, like, you know, how much more of a cog in the machine can we be, right? It's like, you know, there, there must be more to this. And, you know, you can't squeeze out more performance out of like a form letter generating system, right? At some point, you just have to give people better tools for creativity. And uh, that actually applied more broadly, right? I mean, I was, you know, I'm going to say it wasn't just me and John and Andrew. I mean, we started just looking at technology through the lens of like, you know, is this helping creativity or is it getting in the way of creativity? And the creative process actually has different design requirements, and different design needs than efficiency. And, and that's certainly something where, where I would say, you know, the reason why Microsoft is such a large and profitable company is because they're solving a very important problem for companies, which is like how to run their workflows, their document workflows effectively and efficiently. Um, but there is a new problem space that's there that's just as pressing and just as important, which is the, the, the creativity innovation imperative that companies are there. You won't win by being you know, out 
effectus, being more effective than others, right? You win by being more innovative, more creative in the long run, right? And so that is certainly where we just saw a big need of taking all the, the great things technologies were enabling and actually putting that then in the, the pursuit of uh, human creativity. So I learned a lot from Microsoft, I, you know, and I, I don't think they're doing anything right or wrong. They're just, you know, they're serving their market. Yeah, it's a different approach. It's a different solving a, a different, different problem pro ultimately. Right, and and it's like, you know, and PowerPoint isn't going to go away anytime soon. Same with like Keynote, Google Slides, all that stuff. You know, I mean, people should use the tool that's appropriate to their their job. But I think for, as fifty three is we're going to talk to people and address people as you know fellow creatives, great creative thinkers, and innovators. Um, and they should think about 53's tools as a way of, you know, bringing more creativity and innovation to companies rather than, you know, the standard, more efficiency more or whatever. Efficiency. I wanted to ask you about Pencil mm -hmm. because uh, to me, I mean, the software that you, that you build is, is so beautiful, so well thought out. And it's not just aesthetically beautiful, but sort of the, the, the details, the intent behind the design is so clear. And that takes a very uh, specific skill set. And then to go and build a piece of hardware seems like I, I wouldn't even know where to start, um, you know, uh, coming from a software background. And so it certainly seems like and seemed like a, a natural extension at the time from a business perspective. But as far as actually taking that step, and sort of saying, you know, uh, internally, like, this is what we need to do. And now we need to get good at this. What did that process look like? Was that a big, long sort of negotiation internally? Um, did it seem totally crazy, but then eventually everyone came to it? Was it easy to, to go there? Like, you know, to think of the idea is one thing, and it was a, a great idea, but then to actually say, okay team like we're gonna go and do this crazy thing what was that process like right maybe this is it's a little maybe it would help you know so john jonathan harris uh, uh one of our founders uh, actually is one of the world's best industrial designers like so he designed some of the top selling laptops um for hp and worked then on the xbox and then we brought on um, uh, john akita so he was a product manager uh for for xbox uh the xbox 360 um, their head of engineering on the hardware side um jim Koo like ended up building like sidewinder the joysticks some of the top selling mice so from the very beginning we also had a belief that uh that we can't just build software we also have to think about the input experience and this will get a little bit like technical um but why is the stylus such a big deal like the stylus uh, in a gestural interface, right? And in, in touch is a gestural interface. You, you can do a lot with gestures, but the one thing you can't really tell is what is the intention of the gesture? Is it one about manipulating or is it one about creating, right? You can't, and so people come up with different tricks to go around it, like take um, highlighting a document, right? You're scrolling through your document and then you wanna highlight. So. The way this works today is you have to press, pause, hold, a little highlight widget appears and then you highlight and you know, and then you're out of the creation or highlighting mode and then you're back into scrolling mode, right? 
it's it's highly disruptive actually and never really works well and it's 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 or you have like now force touch where you can push harder like there's always some type of mode switching involved right because a gesture based system and we knew this working on you know connect we worked on um, you know windows phone uh, zoom types all types of hardware problems like any type of like gestural or touch based system you just can't distinguish between that so we knew that stylus would be part of our story right and that's why we actually we had a hardware team part of our founding so you team. knew that from the beginning. Oh yeah, and so a lot of the software hardware interactions that you see in paper, right, were designed with a pencil in mind. It was a funny time because everywhere we showed up, everyone was telling us what, like you know, everyone would tell us what Steve Jobs said. And it was like you know, everyone would show up and be like, George, you know what Steve Jobs said about the stylus? I was like, I know what Steve Jobs said about the stylus. He was wrong. You know, you need a stylus. Like there is just there and you know and so that was like a big part of the story uh for us from the from the very beginning it took us a while to arrive at the design of pencil right that was actually quite the odyssey of a, a product development approach but um yeah i really really liked where the design ended out uh, ended up with and, and, I, and that's like you know huge credit to, to john and team on that i really didn't realize that that was sort of part of the original vision yeah um so you know one house one house of 53 was all about efficiency, right, with Office. The other house came from Xbox, which was about wasting people's time, <laughs> right? We were like, you know what, let's put us together and figure out. What do you think to... about the uh, the Connect being discontinued? Well, so the Connect, I mean, I mean, it's, there's so much to be said about that. One, I mean, the Connect was a truly a breakthrough device at that time, right? And it's, it's uh, this is funny when we were working at, at, um, at on on like a number of projects around 2007 2008 at Microsoft right um, when when we were working on our two screen digital tablet called Courier or some other folks walking around with a bunch of connects strapped on their heads looking outwards and that's what essentially was the first prototype for for Hololens. Right. So, I mean, you know, the, the, and if you look at face ID, right. Yeah. App, I mean, that is a small connect, exactly. which is exactly, you know, incredible. But I guess like 10 years later, you know, a system that was, you know, gesturing this big is now like minuscule, like right. in a little notch. Right. I think but that's, that's a winning strategy is just shrink it and put it in a phone. You know? uh, yeah. So the fascinating thing with connect, right. Getting back to, to that is like, like the introduction of new interactions and interaction mechanisms and mechanics is actually really, really hard. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when you look at, you know, voice, uh, like voice interfaces, like who would have known that actually putting it in a stationary environment like Alexa uh, was sort of key to unlock a voice interaction, right? I mean, voice interaction was part of I don't know, hundreds of millions of phones, right? right? But it never really made sense to people until you put it onto a kitchen table, give it a permanent home and call it Alexa, right? So when you look at a lot of these interactions that we've seen, like from, you know, AR, 3D force touch, you know, the the crown uh, on a watch to, to um, gestural interfaces to, uh, you know, various autocorrect paradigms and, you know, swipey interfaces. Like over the last, like, 10, 15 years, like we've really seen sort of an explosion of different input mechanisms. And Connect was an interesting one, but I don't, but but making actually uh, any one of these input mechanisms work really, really well, that they're extremely joyful to use, 
requires a staggering amount of effort. And, and to have it as a standalone product. product I mean, I know yeah. it, it, it was a companion, um, but for instance, with iPhone 10, it, it comes with the phone, right? Yes. And so I saw a demo today on Twitter. Um, a developer was messing around with a, a essentially face-controlled UI where he was going, it was a music player and he could adjust the volume, go to the next song, previous song, play pause just by moving his face Hmm. in different ways um and right all of that technology originated elsewhere but to your alexa example it it sort of has to eventually find its home in a way where people will actually use it yeah or where most people will finally use it instead of just the the curious few at the beginning yeah yeah it takes a while to understand that i was you know, when you even think about the, the canonical like Steve Jobs demo when he introduced the, you know, the iPhone in 2007, and there is this moment, and he, I think he does it like three times where he unlocks a phone. Like the unlock gesture involves him picking up a button and moving a button across the screen and dropping it off. Like where we're just like, right. like, and then the icons of, and appear, right? Yeah. But think about that like it's a gestural interface why is he touching a button right it makes no sense like today you just swipe no matter where you swipe it was totally foreign but it but even that like figuring out that you can swipe anywhere on the screen and you still get the same effect right took what eight years right you know to or i don't know like seven years for, for for that to really become mainstream right so the transition like there is a saying that like you know you know that that the new medium imitates the old medium like you know the first thing that you saw on tv were like radio hosts and it was really boring right and then you got new formats developed after that like the same happens with new interactions right so first it's a facsimile of what came before before, and then you sort of realize the potential of the new medium itself yeah and that takes a lot of time to develop so and i think you know with connect for business reasons and and also like you know as you said integration reasons end-to-end reasons content offering reasons like you know i never necessarily got super mainstream but it had a huge impact on the industry in terms of thinking about oh wait you know what happens if a computer sees yeah well even thinking about what was it that your one of your teachers said you you create with your whole body mm-hmm. that's you right know, it's yeah. such a perfect sort of uh yeah. representation of that um yeah even because around that time also the we right introduced like a like an IMU, like an inertial sensor or a motion sensor into the gaming context, right? And they did some cool games and yeah. some fun stuff, right? But, you know, when you think about how sophisticated, like, like motion tracking now is on phones and, um, you know, where it's all found uses beyond, like, you know, the gaming context, it's pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah, eventually you just take it for granted, mm. you know. With the pencil um, project, I would imagine also just from a... You know, as a startup, and maybe your original investors sort of knew about that vision, even if if the public didn't. Um, but just even from a business perspective, selling software or or free software, um, and manufacturing and selling hardware, and the whole process of retail and and you know defects and returns and. I mean, the logistics must just be, it, it's, it, I, making it is one thing and then like running a hardware-based business 
just sounds incredibly challenging, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so on any given day, do you sort of think of, of 53 as a software company that has sort of a hardware component? Is a hardware company with sort of a software, you know, uh, companion? Or do you really have some sort of, you know, mental model which is something sort of outside of any any of those um and i have a feeling the answer is number three but but i want to know sort of how you think about the company yeah you know so with 53 right i mean 53 stands for the 53 centimeters the length of the average arm's reach right that's space between head heart and blank canvas it's where people create and we know that the need to create will be constant, right? And technology will come and go. So our job is to essentially take the most promising and exciting technologies of any given time and then build essential tools around that, right? So that's sort of, so for me, uh, and for us, like we were really looking at, at uh, you know, the iPad as an incredible opportunity to create a device for creation. Uh, Pencil made that better. And, uh, and when it comes now to messaging, right, we see, the, the evolution of messaging as a huge opportunity to rethink like, you know, how does a presentation tool work? Because like, you know, messaging should support the creative process. But, you know, you talk a lot about like sort of like or the logistics of running a, a um, you know, a hardware business, right? It really comes down to people. If you had the team, right, it it's all of a sudden feels much less daunting. In fact, it seems like a great thing to do. And... Um, so, you know, today we're 53 is fully focused on, you know, our software and our service, right? So we're, we're, we're not in the hardware business anymore. But, um, you know, at that time, I was really happy uh, because, you know, in 2000, I mean, you know, just talking dollars and cents, like in 2012, 2013, there was a brief moment of time where you could actually make, you know, some revenues using in-app purchases. And that's something that, um, very quickly dissipated, right? So a lot of the promise of the App Store as a viable marketplace for application developers has yet to materialize outside of gaming, right? And so it was one of those things where where I was uh, really glad, and actually our investors and everyone was really glad that we had actually a diversified product offering. And, and um, I would say actually m- selling hardware products is a great business. Uh, consumers understand what they're buying, um, they know, understand it's going to cost money, cost money right. right? There is actually, you know, you're not selling something else in exchange for the product that you're getting. Like, you know, when it comes to software, there's some really wonky business models out there right now, right? Where consumers don't really know what they're giving up uh, in exchange for the software that they're giving. And, and, you know, in the process, like some of the things that we've hold most dear and treasured, like, you know, our democracy are being sold out. Like, and to me, you know, I'm not happy about that. And that's kind of when I'm looking at the hardware businesses and I'm like, wow, man, that's pretty straightforward. Like, right. Here's right. this thing. Make a thing. This is how much it costs me to make it. I'm going to mark it up yeah. a little bit. Yeah. I'm going to sell it to you. And it's actually also a really exciting time to, to be in the hardware business because, uh, you know, customers will buy products directly from you. You don't have to go through retail. You can have an immediate relationship with your customers. Like, you know, uh, Amazon, you know, love them or hate them, but they've done a really amazing job in making it easier for you to get physical products out. 
Yeah. Um, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the shipping companies today are doing a really, really amazing job enabling essentially logistics. So it's, I mean, it's an exciting time. Um, and especially like when you think about like the retail model as it's being like disrupted right now, I don't know how else to describe it, but like, you know, a retailer use, usually connect collects anywhere between, you know, 30 to 70% of your uh, sticker price, right? Imagine if you can sell directly to customers and you don't have to part right at that you know, same price, right? You, know, or you don't have order. to yeah. part 37% of that. And so when we were, for example, designing pencil, we knew we would have a direct channel to our customers. And we ended up in a different pricing structure where we were able to put more value into our product. Like, uh, for example, like pencil was made out of walnut b body, right? The, that's a really expensive processing part. That's a really expensive step to make anything out of walnut. Like it's just expensive. And the reason why you hadn't seen consumer products with a walnut body, I think in part had to do with the fact that they had to sell through retail. Right. Like the markup on a, you know, multiple dollar part, like, you know, if that part costs you four dollars, but then you have to part exactly seventy percent with like, you know, a four dollar part ends up being a twelve dollar part. Right. At, Whereas at, if you're at, not retail, but when you to share those margins, then you right. can you can design and build different products. Yeah. And that's and that certainly was like really, really exciting with with uh, with with pencil. The uh, the other straightforward model when it comes to software is enterprise. Right. And so, uh, again, it seems that with enterprise software, companies do understand I'm going to buy this software we're going to use this software, there's some way to sort of measure a return on that investment, whether directly or indirectly. And so um, the, the software problems that you talk about um, from a business model perspective and also from a you know democracy crushing perspective, it does seem like uh, consumer software is an incredibly difficult space to be in right now is if this is the golden age for direct to consumer hardware it's almost like the whatever you know the opposite of the golden age uh for direct to consumer even though of course there's that if you look out into the world it would suggest otherwise in other words consumer uh, software is flourishing um but i actually and we've messed with direct to consumer products and always have just come back to b2b because it is so straightforward and as you know who the customer is and and there's a clear sort of value exchange and and um and so it's interesting you're sort of living in both worlds you know um uh, and 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 that sort of allows you to maintain a certain integrity on the consumer side because you have sort of these other ways to balance it for other startups that really want to build consumer facing software that's free uh, and except in the rare case it's almost impossible not to make it free if you want to have any sort of volume what would you tell those people as far as how to run a business um, if there's no b2b component and there's no you know sort of hardware and there's nothing all of the straightforward things just sort of poof away and what you're left with is software. Is, is it possible to, to build a, a sustainable business around free consumer software that's not, you know, sort of selling out your users? Yeah, but even the selling out part, like, 
you know, the networks in particular, like, you know, have, or Facebook and Google in terms of the advertising plays, like they've gotten so large, that's, I mean, we're dealing with a duopoly on, on that part, right? So um, then you get into like really like shady practices where people are selling your email data, right? Or who knows what, right, to, to, to do this. But let's talk about consumers. Let's really talk about the consumer space. Like, you know, it's, it's hard for me to really think of like non- game consumer software of the late last seven years right that have that has done very well um yeah i i mean i would say media and news apps certainly some, nowhere near games but in other words again there's a in my experience there's a, a more clear value proposition i understand i'm going to subscribe to the new york times or something yeah. you know um yeah, so but I wouldn't consider but, them like they leveraged a billion-dollar yeah. brand, right? sure. Probably, or I don't know, but you know, um, brand, right? video subscription Station services, services yeah. subscription media-based subscription services. They're starting, right? And I think it's like, you know, I like probably some of the things that are really exciting for me to see is like, you know, um, you know, Stratechery, mm-hmm. um, Ben Thompson, and a lot of folks finding sort of niche subscription services and making that. But let's go back to actually like products that are being sold to consumers. And I think the trick really is to to make sure that you're in a marketplace or being presented in a marketplace where everything around you isn't zero dollars, right? It's kind of, uh, you know, you gotta apply sort of the the grocery, the, the department's grocery store logic, right? If if you go to the candy aisle, like you can't be 50 bucks, right? I mean, it just, you just can't. Everything is like 50 or 75 cents around you. Like you can't put, I mean, it would be an interesting experiment, right? right? But you just can't do that. Um, you know, there is the top, same with liquor brands, are you top shelf or you, you know, in the, like if you're top shelf, you gotta be in a certain pricing brand, a band. So, I almost would say like, and I don't, and that's kind of the part where I don't have a good answer for, but like really look for your consumer product. Like, you know, where's the market? Where's the buyer? And in that marketplace, like are people actually used to paying? Right. And if they are, great. Right. That's kind of like, you know, what is it? Jimmy O'Reilly, like one of my favorite sayings, what he's saying, like, if you can't make money selling music, sell everything around music. And all of a sudden he's making like headphones and more merchandising and mm-hmm. films and, you know, con- premium concert experiences and everything around right. that. Right. So I think, you know, that's the, the technique that they really works is just find like essentially a merchandising environment where people are used to selling. And the problem with say the app store is that like you're in a zero dollar environment where a lot of it is just you know, yeah. most people just see free and, and that's just very, very, and that's very hard to actually like, I mean, you, you know, you can't fault a consumer you show up into a store, everything is free. You, you know, they'll just, they'll be upset if your stuff isn't free. Well, it's bizarre because, you know, with iOS 11, for instance, if you open the app store, the first tab is sort of featured, you know, the sort of mm. curated apps. The second tab is games, uh, which now has its own you know, yeah. home. And the third tab is apps, which is every other app, you know. Um, and then if you scroll down far enough, you can get to categories and you can drill in. And, and um, you know, there's what over two million apps on the app store, but almost all of them are in that third tab, sort of never to be never to be seen by human eyes. Um, and yet they continue to be created. 
somehow these apps, I read some crazy style, like 15,000 apps are, are uh, approved every month. Hmm. You know, it's like, what are they? And, and, and who is seeing them? And, and yeah, I mean, if I try to convince one of my friends or, or my wife to, to download an app that costs two ninety nine. It's like a battle. There's mm-hmm. no way someone will pay. You know. Meanwhile, they're holding a nice coffee in their hand that costs more than that. Yeah. That'll be gone in in the next five minutes. You know. Um, so it's a perception thing. It, it's it's. Uh, I don't know. It's a strange time to be yeah. in 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 the business. But but you, know, you guys sort of represent this as you're not a game. You're not a news or media app. Um, and I guess productivity really is the other category that seems to survive. Yeah, well, we need, like, we'll see. So, you know, our upcoming launch of paper or version four of paper, uh, we are introducing like a new subscription service there. So that will be, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see how how our customers react to that. And we think it's a tremendous value. And it's a, it is right. It's, it's, you know, it's, like I actually did the math today, like on average, um, you know, every customer did at least 10 updates of paper, right? You just have to like that's crazy like that, you know, that's like the average customer. So 10, I know it's in over the lifetime we've done over like 75 updates. Right. That's just the average. Right. So the average is like 10 updates. Right. And that's just um, there. But we really, you know, I'm excited about the subscription offering and, and I hope, you know, consumers will understand that, you know what, this is, this is what we need to stay in business, right? And we need to actually, or to make our business work, we need that. And then with Paste, we're looking at building out more of a uh, enterprise subscription business around that, right? So you have, um, we have like two, two different revenue models coming. Yeah. And, uh, that's exciting. You know, and I, I, I like I you know I hope you know I really really hope that um, you know people understand you know one why we're doing these changes and and more importantly like that they're opening up their hearts and their wallets so to speak to subscribe. Totally, but I mean you know you're offering a premium product and and I do think that um, subscriptions as a whole seem to really be sort of having a moment which I hope. I hope we're just at the beginning of, of sort of that trajectory, um, whether it be, you know, sort of media-based subscriptions, um, software-based subscriptions, both on enterprise and, and consumer. Um, so someone won't pay that two ninety nine one time for an app. But if you say, oh, there's this amazing service that lets you do X, Y, Z, and it's nine ninety nine a month, that sort of sounds like something I've done before. That sounds mm. like Netflix. That sounds like Slack. That sounds like, you know, um, and and it's so easy to subscribe in the app environment. Mm. You know, uh, it's funny working with so many magazine brands over the years. Um, I always felt like, why aren't non-publishing apps taking advantage of subscriptions? Um, and in the past couple of years, I've started to see a lot more sort of non-traditional subscription type products, ad subscriptions. And I think it makes a ton of sense because it, it aligns the consumer and the business. Uh, yeah. You know, this is something, it's not a one-time transaction. I, I'm going to now become uh, a customer ongoing. And to your point, the technology of the day will 
sort of change with that. But if I'm sort of bought into why this product exists and, and if I'm bought into the, why this brand exists, then I should be happy to sort of pay an ongoing fee to go wherever they go. Yeah. Um, I just had this conversation with my sister-in-law last night. She she got a new iPhone and did the Apple, whatever they're calling it, iPhone upgrade program, mm-hmm. you know, where you're paying whatever is 40-something dollars a month instead of, until now, she always buys the phone, the phone you yeah. know, and she didn't even realize it was being subsidized by the cell phone carrier and whatever. And so we were talking about it. I said, yeah, really a better way to think of it is like you're renting this phone or even better, you're just subscribing to being an iPhone customer. And and in return, you'll always have the newest, coolest iPhone. But like this isn't your phone per se. It's hmm. just you, you're just subscribing to the iPhone lifestyle, you know. And I don't know if that's how Apple markets it, but that's that's how I've started to think about it and that in my life and in everyone's life, I think you pick and choose a few brands that that are sort of represent your lifestyle hmm. and you're willing to pay money ongoing to to be part of those those brands, of those stories, you know. Um, so I don't know. That That's how I've started to think about subscription businesses in general, you know. Uh, you were mentioning music. I would do that even for some of my favorite musicians, Yeah, you know. And, and, and everyone only has a couple. You're not going to subscribe to 20 of your favorite artists. You're going to, you know. Well, today, most people well, subscribe to all artists. I know, but I wonder if that's almost yeah. a mistake, um, mm. you know, or or if, again, I, I'm just, you know, I haven't thought this through. But, you know, let's say you're really obsessed with a band. And so not only do you get all their music, but you get their behind the scenes and you get discounted tickets and you get it's like a fan club. Yeah. You know, um, and so the question is, how many businesses can actually essentially make fan clubs work. Yeah. Well, I think it's like, I mean, when you look at the app store business in particular, right, I think, you know, 2016, 26 billion, these are like, I think, or like these are, I'm not sure which app any estimates, like $26 billion were spent on iOS, 85% was on games, right? So that creates you down to 3.7 billion, something like that for for non-gaming apps. So that is like every media application and every productivity application, everything that isn't a game, Yes, 3.7 million. Right. That third billion, down. you divide that across 700 million iOS devices, right? And you end up at an annual spend of five bucks a year. On average. On average. Right. right? And you got to so, figure a ton of those people are zeros. Yeah. So, so it's right. $5 or you divide that by 12 and now you're like at, what, 50 cents around, like somewhere between 50 cents or a dollar, right? So right now, essentially your app subscription service nets you is about a dollar a month, right? So that is like so far away from uh an economically viable place <laughs> yes. like you yeah. know it, it, it's 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 like you know you think your music you know that's ten dollars uh your dropbox subscription is ten dollars right i mean you just go through it like you know so there is a lot still that needs to actually happen for people to recognize that you know this is a, a marketplace and it's kind of like or another thing like when you buy a tv for the longest time you had to buy a subscription to content, right? And then, which was in the United States, I think like what, $60, $70 or something like that. Um, you know, when you buy a phone, the idea that your apps are free makes no sense when you really right. think about it. Like, you know, I mean, you're, a phone without apps would 
totally suck. It would be right. a boring phone. Right. And um, it would just be a phone. It, it would, <laughs> so, so, you know, the, you know, and you're, you're going to pay, you know, $35, $40 for your cell phone plan. Right. Right. So what about the software? Right. So I think there's though, so between like where we are today, like under a dollar a month mm -hmm. to where it needs to be, there's still a long, long road and a lot of to think about big way. macroeconomic type changes need to happen. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, but that's, and ultimately, like, I, I believe you won't have, like, I actually believe you won't have like lots of lots of different brands that you have relationships with. You'll have sort of larger bundles of products. Like, you know, I think there will be one day an app, like an iOS app subscription plan, right? I think that's where iCloud is going to migrate to. Like, it makes just sense. Like, iCloud is $2.99 a month. Like, why is that three times more than the apps, right? You know, it's like, when you just start looking at right. these economics. When so you imagine that you would days. get your new iPhone and you say, okay, if you want a, an Apple Music subscription, it's this. If you want an App Store subscription, it's this. It's if you want this. And then with you know maybe that gives you access to everything that's currently free let's say and then there are upsells sort of from there yeah or different tiered sort of premium you know here you get the five top news apps and here you get the yeah that's what know. would need to happen in order to put actually a, a, like a a, a a vibrant marketplace it's together like the spotification of yeah. all software yeah yeah, so that is something that would need to happen. Otherwise, you know, people are going to be stuck between, you know, the existing subscriptions that people have. Like when it comes to productivity tools, it's like, well, you know, Microsoft has, like, you know, Microsoft subscription is going to be around. Adobe subscription is going to be around. Um, Google, essentially, in exchange for your information, is going to give you free software. Um, you know, Amazon is going to pop up and give you free software in exchange for you using their servers, right? I mean, Facebook is going to give you like, well, they, they're going to give you like, you know, free software in exchange for, for your information. Russian ads. Right? Oh, Russian, sure. Yeah, yeah, that. Like yeah, that. yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's so what I was going like, to say. Sorry, yeah. You know, it's... No, it's... it's um, so so it's, it's like, you know, there is, there is, you know, if you truly believe in like a marketplace um, for, for software, like, you know, the platforms would actually have to create it. Or, you know, um, you know, companies like 53, maybe we can show a path forward. I, I, I personally believe you will, because if you look, let's say, on Twitter, I mean, it's just clear that the people that use your software are rabid mm. about it, you know, that, that it's not, it, it, it's, um, I think when you, when you do make a connection with a brand, you become loyal, you become mm. an advocate. Um, and this happens for people with certain fashion brands or, or um, you know, certain sports teams or whatever. There's a million yeah. places. And, and I disagree a little bit. I mean, I like, I like everything you're proposing, but, but the way I see it playing out, at least in the short term, is really that because direct-to-consumer businesses are so much easier to build now mm. than they ever have been, um, and there's also such a sort of fragmentation of of styles and others not everyone is shopping at the same few stores and not everyone is listening to the same few bands and yeah. you know um the internet is because everything's so easy the volume is so much higher 
And so everyone is sort of all over the place, um, but that's okay. And so I think it's it will be much, much harder today to build a massive business like Microsoft Office. But I think there's gonna be a lot more sort of smaller or, or at least, you know, modest sized by comparison businesses um, across the board. Uh, and I think subscriptions are great. Like, I don't know about you, but clothing wise, like I'm, I'm very loyal to certain brands. Like I always wear Levi's, mm-hmm. right? And if, honestly, if they had some sort of subscription program, I'd probably spend a few hundred dollars mm-hmm. with Levi's a year. It's not like anything crazy um, where, you know, they know that if I'm buying a pair of pants here, those are probably going to start to get some holes in the knees around here. And so I, I'll need a new pair by that time. You know, uh, I, I wonder if I would do it, you know? Um, and so it might not work for every business, but um, but I think there's something about about really trying to bring those fans in and and form direct relationships with them and foster almost like a, a, a lifestyle brand. Yeah. You know, around all of these different products. Originally, it it was because of the the jeans, but now you're a, a Levi's person. Or originally, it was because of of uh, you know the uh, paper, but you're a 53 person. Mm. You know, um, and and I you see it happen in certain verticals, uh, but I, I think I think potentially that could happen in in mm. new unexpected places. Yeah. Well, if it helps us, like form an even stronger connection with our, our our customers and our creators and lets us service them better like that's a really good thing yeah um well thank you so much for joining me where can people find you online like what's the best way twitter awesome yeah, at, at george pechnik uh, um, and when should we be on the lookout for some of this uh End of November. Wow. End of November. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you for taking the time. This, this is, this is, must be a crazy month for you. Oh yeah, that's exciting. It's gonna be exciting. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wizardist. Again, I encourage you to check out Paper and Paste by 53. And if you like the podcast, please consider subscribing, rating, reviewing, sharing on social media, telling your mom about it. Bye for now.